So as we begin this study in 1 Corinthians, it might be good for you to have a little mental picture of Corinth, the um, standard commentator, you might say, on Paul's letter to the 1 Corinthians says that Corinth was kind of the L.A., New York, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. And so you just, you know, let your mind get wrapped around that for a minute. It's a combination of Vegas, New York, and L.A., And so it wouldn't surprise us then that this cosmopolitan culture produced in the Corinthian church this very fiery, independent spirit. And when that spirit got mixed with certain kinds of spiritualities that we'll say more about, it produced some not-so-great effects. And we'll be looking at these things over the next 11 weeks. And this first one is, is that it produced a divisive spirit that a claim to special spiritual knowledge married to this sort of boastful, fiery, independent spirit produced a vibe, you might say, in the church that said something like this. This is my version of Christianity. It's the right one. And if you don't agree, you don't belong here. Now, again, just to get us thinking about this topic, uh, let's just think before we get into the text some more about some common themes regarding divisions. The first one is that I think both biblically speaking and certainly my 40 years of experience would be that divisions almost always stem from the same root cause, and that is disordered desires. And this is what James is getting at when he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that battle among you? You want something, church to be a little different, so-and-so to not be as much as what they are, to be more than what they are. You want something, you don't get it, and so something rises up in you where you're willing to kill and covet and quarrel and fight. That is to say, you're, you're willing to do whatever it takes to get what you want. And whether it's a friendship or a corporation or a small window washing business or a family or a marriage or a church, once someone decides, once someone crosses that mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual line that says, I'm willing to do whatever it takes here because I'm right, then just all manner of hell is loosed. The second thing to say is that in this modern Now, completely connected, I mean, uh, uh, somebody teaching on this text, you know, 60 years ago, commenting on airplanes or trains or horses, any kind of, you know, modern transportation. But now, these days, in the age of supersonic jets that can carry hundreds of people and and a connectivity that we have via the web, you can't run and hide anymore. There's no place you can go both physically and spiritually, if you disagree with something. Where are you going to go? How far would you have to run to find a pure church? I mean, let's take something very simple, like forms of government. Some people might say, well, we're Presbyterians, and we think this is what the New Testament teaches. At least it's it's the preferred, among the three, it's the preferred way to go. Anglicans, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox would say, oh, no, 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 you guys have that all wrong. Calvin was good on a lot of stuff, but, you know, the Reformation missed that bit. You know, what's really important here is the the episcopacy historically understood. 
And others like Anabaptists and others would say, no, 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 you guys have it all wrong, that that just leads to all kinds of spirit-crushing bureaucracy. Both of those do. And what we really need is a congregational model of government. Well, where are you going to go? Look, there is one church. We say it every week in our creed. There is one indivisible body of Christ. It disagrees about these things. Where are you going to go? There's no pure place to run, and I could list all kinds of topics here. That's just an easy one that none of us would get too crazy about. right? But we could talk about some things here that even we could get crazy about. And the third and last thing that I would want to say then, just kind of getting you warmed up for this topic, is that there is an example in the New Testament of Paul and Barnabas and a dispute, so to speak, about John Mark, one of the young sort of apprentice uh, leaders in the church, you might say. And Paul and Barnabas couldn't agree upon it, and so they went their separate ways. Now, as far as we know from the sacred text, I mean, I didn't trace down every source of antiquity, but as far as we can know just from our sacred text, we don't know that Paul and Barnabas ever spoke to each other again. No, but you don't have to read into that that they hated each other or that they spoke negatively of each other. I think what I would want to say is when I look at me, my own internal structure of desire, my present spirituality with its strengths and weaknesses, and no offense, but when I look at you, I would just want to say this, that given our present weaknesses, sometimes going separate ways is the best kingdom-minded, God-honoring thing that can be done. If it is done with love and respect and humility. Because sometimes people just can't come to one mind on something. And there's no source of authority that can stand above that and adjudicate, can say what's right. Right? Like who among us is going to say, no, the continental reformers were wrong and the, you know, the Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox are right. I mean, who, like who has the authority to do that? No one can stand up and say, this is the way it is. I mean, the Pope tries, right? Constantinople tries. They give it a good shot. But it's not a secret that most Roman Catholics in the world just kind of go, whatever. It's just the truth on any number of doctrines, even when the Pope speaks ex cathedra. Probably most of the Catholic Church just shrugs its shoulders and goes, well, whatever. So there aren't human authorities that we can appeal to that can, like, with finality adjudicate these things for us. So sometimes the very best we can do is say, we've done our best to come to one mind on this. I love you. I respect you. In humility, I know I could be wrong about this. But this is such a glaring difference for us to serve God well. We're going to have to do what Paul and Barnabas did. All right, having said that, let's get into the text here a bit. Paul, as he worked with his various churches, saw that divisions was actually not something just real for the Corinthians, but was an important topic in all of his churches. To the Romans, he said, watch out for those who cause divisions. For Titus, as he's training this young minister in his, his first pastorate, you might say, he says to Titus, watch out for that person who stirs up division. To the Ephesians and the Colossians, speaking more positively, he says, maintain the unity in the spirit. To the Colossians, he says, put on love, which binds everything together. That is to say, love works against division. 
So the backstory here in Corinth is, is that I said some of these Corinthians were claiming to have special knowledge. Now, I can't go into that too deeply, but it was a it was kind of an elitism that said we're, we're, as people born again into the kingdom, we have a special connection with God through the Spirit, and, and it gives us claim then to this special knowledge. And they were then using that knowledge against each other and causing divisions in the church. And so for Paul, of course, this is classic to living in or by the flesh, right? Because these are claims to power. These are claims to position. That's what people in the flesh do. People in the spirit don't do that, right? And if you're familiar at all with Paul's letters, you know that he's always anxious in any church to know that they're living in and by and through the spirit. So if you look at the text, you can see that Paul first says, I appeal to you. That is to say, Paul's whole goal is to get them to change. He's trying to get them to change their attitudes and change their behaviors such that they would then look at the text, agree with one another, that there would be no divisions among you, and that you'd be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, can you imagine trying to do that on any university campus today? (laughs) Can you imagine trying to do that in a family? Do you know that there are families who are beginning to hate each other because of Trump and Clinton? Literally hate each other. Divide over it. We won't have anything to do with you. Because no sane person could be for one or the other. No Christian could be for one or the other. And so Paul, though, you know, he just sort of dives right into this. But you just um, have to know that while there was a kind of stridency, you might say, and an elitism in the Corinthian church that Paul's trying to get to change... We might have that, but we've also got this radically pluralistic and relativistic culture that says, you can't tell me anything. All you have is your perspective. You don't know anything. You might think put her in jail, but you don't know anything. You might think he's a racist. We could go on and on and on, but you don't know anything. And so, like, how does some authority outside of you appeal to you to change in this pluralistic, relativistic culture? Because the question is always raised, who knows enough, who has a pure enough perspective by which to tell anyone to change? Now, that just sits like a fog, coastal fog. That, that, just, that reality just sits in our culture in every way and in every place. But I think there's an answer And the answer is, even when good-hearted people and and people who are humble and, and willing to see someone else's point of view, or if they're argumentative, if we're going to change something, the best we can do is just say we're going to trust and follow Jesus. The best we can, we're going to pattern our life after what he taught and how he lived. And this, both for the gospel writers and especially for Paul, this is what's known as you've probably heard this word, cruciform. It just means cross-shaped. And this is Paul's constant ethical appeal. Like, you know, Paul's sort of the, you know, the famous grace guy who speaks in, you know, indicatives and talking about grace. But whenever Paul shifts to imperative, whenever Paul shifts, and these, these texts, frankly, aren't imperatives. They're an appeal. They're something a little bit different. But nevertheless, there's an imperative force behind them. When Paul does that, it is always rooted in the cross. It is never rooted in mere moralisms. 
It's not that I shouldn't hate you or think you're a jerk because of 21st century American political pop culture. It's I shouldn't think you're a jerk because I'm living a cross-shaped, cross-animated, cross-enabled, cross-energized life. Wherefore, when I look at you, the first thing I think is, Father, forgive them, even if they're wrong. For they know not what they do. And I'm willing to give my life for them. I'm willing to serve them. Even if I think they're wrong. And this is why Paul goes on in his letters about the cross being the God's wisdom and how for Paul living a cross-shaped life is what it means to be spiritual. And so this is the big uh, contrast Paul's seeing as he thinks about this Corinthian church. There's this boastful appeal to a spiritual elitism and Paul sees that, like, I don't know if he chuckled or cried, but sort of like, you're actually not spiritual at all. Because to be spiritual at all means to live a cross-shaped life. And so what Paul's picturing is not people who would think, well, I speak in tongues, therefore I'm spiritual. Now that represents a huge part of the body of Christ. There are others, and we know a lot about this here in Southern California, who would think that I've mastered the data of the Bible, and therefore I'm spiritual and you're not. There are others who would say, I come to Eucharist every week. Uh, the, the, the most committed, if they have the opportunity to do it, I go to Eucharist every day. And therefore, that makes me spiritual. And what Paul, I think, would want to say is that all of those might be things that can help a genuine, are, are things that help a genuine spirituality, but spirituality can never be reduced to them. Because as soon as you do that, you've just made divisions. And of course, this doesn't make any sense to Paul because Paul, when he sees the body of Christ, he sees Jew and Greek and slave and free and men and women and Scythians and barbarians. He sees this whole uh, sort of batch of diversity becoming one through Christ who is best understood by the cross. And so what Paul sees is a highly diverse church. Now listen to this. Paul, Paul actually positively envisions a highly diverse church, but an undivided one that no longer divides about women and men and rich and poor and ethnicity and race and those sorts of things. It like would never cross someone's mind to divide about those things is what Paul sees. But with all the multiplicity of people and things that would be in that kind of church. So what Paul sees is no matter your skin color, no matter your ethnic origin, no matter your gender, all of that, all of that diversity creates a oneness in that we are all pursuing a cross-shaped soul together. And we all come to it with our own unique brokennesses, most of it attached, frankly, to our histories. So yes, we bring that with us into the church, but a cross-shaped soul, Paul knows, has the natural effect of eliminating elitist spiritual boasting that leads to harmful division. So this being Paul's vision, he's trying to shift their perspective to come into alignment with his vision. And this is why he says, if you look at the text, who after all is Apollos and who's Paul? Now look at the next word. Only servants. Only. 
just, merely, servants. Why? Because, see, servants is a cross-centered um, self-identity. Elitist spiritual boasting, I'm right and you're wrong, is a different sort of self-identity. So Paul's trying to shift their perspective by shifting their sense of identity. And so what Paul's saying here is that Apollos, at least for Apollos and I, we find our meaning and our practice in Jesus and the cross. We aren't anything. We're simply crossed shapes servants. And then look next. So he goes from we're only servants, but next he says, but only God makes things grow. That is to say, this is a God-centric reality, and that's our only hope for unity. We're simply workers and God's servants, and you ought to regard us merely as servants of God. So what Paul's arguing for here is that the shift of perspective that's needed to make unity and not division the knee-jerk reaction is a God-centric view, that a God-centric view of life is the great unifier. Now, Paul, not surprisingly, is always working off Jesus. I just always picture Paul thinking through meaning, what did Jesus mean, what are the implications of this, what are the applications, and so as Paul's writing this letter. Of course, we can't know he actually did this, but at least in my own imagination, I, I, I can sort of hear him thinking to himself, hey, Jesus said something about this. What, what did Jesus think about this? What, how did Jesus care about this? And thus we have John 17. And this great prayer for unity amongst diversity. Right, come on, you don't have to be a great theologian. I just want you to think here with me for a second. This is actually very obvious. When Jesus appeals to the Trinity for what he wants to see in his body, human beings on earth, what is happening? A unity amongst diversity. Look at me. Father, Son, and Spirit. Diversity in an overarching, unutterable, mysterious unity. And so this is what Paul then takes as his mental model. Oh, it's actually possible. It's actually better to have unity and diversity held together in a mysterious one than it is to just give in to our knee-jerk reactions for diversity. And in the last year or so, my friend Scott McKnight wrote a book called A Fellowship of Difference, and in there he says that Paul's view of the church matches the diversity within unity that Jesus was talking about in the Trinity. So that for Paul, gender and socioeconomics and race and culture and style and moralities and politics and language and ages and marital status and so on, these are all true, they're all real, they all exist in the church, but what makes that work is a single-minded devotion to Christ as Lord. That is to say, our diversities can work well when we have a unity of focus that all of us, whether we're sexually broken or economically broken or relationally broken, we don't trust anybody, whatever it is that we bring into the body of Christ, what makes that all work is that we have a unity around we're all trying to change and grow so that we can be obedient to Christ. Now, this doesn't mean we don't think our best thoughts. This doesn't mean we don't pray hard and study hard and try to figure things out. Of course not. 
It simply means that on any topic, when push comes to shove, we strive to live from a cross-shaped soul that values others more than it values ourselves. See, it's one thing to have a natural preference. You know, amongst Anglicans, for instance, you, you might have natural preferences about vestments or music or uh, prayer books. That's, that would be a, a classic one. So there could be natural preferences about these things. No problem. It is not at all for you, a problem for you to have a preference and to know that others have others. The problem is when those preferences, those natural things we feel in us, become then excuses for exclusive divisions because of the claim, especially, that we are spiritually wiser than everyone else. Now, this sounds like I'm kidding, but I'm actually not. Some of my best friends are Presbyterians. <laughs> um, and, and so I've had a little, I just have been able to watch what's happened over the last five or 10 years. And there are more Presbyterians, it's like an alphabet soup. Literally, I can't even keep track anymore. And I have great friends who are Presbyterian pastors and Presbyterian you know, people who work in the denomination. I, I, I can't keep up. So I checked the other day. As far as I can tell, there are in America now 19 different versions of Presbyterians. And I didn't, I, it's harder to check on the Anglican side, but it would be close. I mean, in other words, we're not materially different. And, and so what Paul's saying is you can't go around saying, I am of Presbyterians, or I am of Anglicans, or I am of Pentecostals, or I, have, I am of Roman Catholics, or I'm of liberals or conservatives or fundamentalists. Paul's saying you can't do that. Why? Now, here we come to what I want to leave you with. Sort of the rest of the, that other stuff was all free. That was sort of warm up. This is what I want to leave you with. Why? Why is that such a problem? Because having thus labeled people, the label itself becomes a weapon whereby we can marginalize that person as having lesser value and thus think that we don't have to listen to them or have anything to do with them. And this gets reinforced in us all day, every day, all of us who live in the world because the water we swim in is full of self-promotion and self-esteem and self-worship of winning, of amassing power and followers and gaining clicks. Or the world all around us is full of this notion of what I feel at any given moment is the truest thing. So if I think I'm right and you're wrong and you're a jerk, what I, if I feel that, that's the truest thing, therefore I should operate out of that. Okay, Paul would say, but what if you shifted your perspective toward a more servant-oriented, cruciform life? Or the other thing that's just is in the water we swim in when we have that sort of self-promotional kind of thing going on is that only people... Other people then only have value insofar as they're willing to give me what I want. If not, then well, what value do they have? So given that we swim in this water, um, seems like maybe six weeks ago or something, I started swimming over at the Y. And um, I've noticed, especially the first week or two, I would notice that even after showering, I'd go, and I would still smell like chlorine. Do any of you swim? You know what I mean? I just... I'd still smell like chlorine. And we swim in a water every day. And so it makes one then, I think, I think ask the question, well, then what can we possibly do? And I want to commend to you the ancient practice of indirect effort. No, you, you will get nowhere by saying, oh, I'm not going to be divisive anymore. You can't. Because that 
mental vow will get bludgeoned by your emotions and your thinking in certain social contexts, which will make you act out of what's most real in you. Rather, what you have to do is cultivate humility, cultivate kindness, cultivate compassion, forgiveness, or as Paul would want to say, love, which covers a multitude of sins. Now look, from my deepest guts, I really gut that there are sincere people who wonder about the authority of the Bible. And I have great empathy for cynical people who just sort of reject it out of hand. And huge sympathy for those who have been harmed by its misuse. And I understand intellectuals for whom they just think this whole thing's out of date. I really get it. I have deep empathy for all of that. But thinking of all the sort of knee-jerk reactions that we have towards division today, not just in the church, but in every aspect of human endeavor, I just want you to wonder with me, just for a moment here, wonder with me, how might the world would be different, how might the world be different if we lived from one simple biblical idea? Quoting Paul again here in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now just get this, but, or you might say in contrast, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now you just ask yourself, how would you have broken home been if mom had treated dad or dad had treated mom as if they were better than them? What would our political discourse be like? What would staff meetings be like? What would friendships be like? If I think that members of the GBLT community have more value than me, if I think a sexually conservative person has more value than me, a Republican, a Democrat, a globalist, an American first isolationist, someone who's for women in ministry, someone who's more traditional on the topic, your spouse who ticked you off. We could go on and on and on. And it simply leads us to see then this reality, that a cross-shaped life in which we consider others better than ourselves is true Christian spirituality and is the cure for most division in the church. And the pathway to such a cross-shaped life is the renovation of our hearts through indirect efforts of cooperating with the grace and power of God. This is the vision that Paul sets before the church, a oneness in unity through a Jesus-like cross-shaped life. So we come to a moment of quiet now. I, I wonder if you might think with me for a moment, is there someone in your recent life, or maybe a past life, but it comes back to haunt you a bit, is there someone that you've labeled, someone you've set aside and divided from? And I would invite you in this quiet moment to do just a bit of work. See if you can find some value in that person. 
See if you can humbly work towards valuing them more than you value yourself.